It is my great joy and my humble responsibility to lead you in worship this morning by inviting you to open the infallible record to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Matthew 27. And before we look at verses 62 through actually verse 10 of chapter 28, may I preface my remarks by getting you to think with me for a moment about the incarnation of Christ. Every aspect of the incarnation Christ is a marvel to anyone who contemplates it. When you think about it, God becoming man is something that exceeds our ability to comprehend. Moreover, I'm amazed at God's divine plan for redemption to reconcile sinners to himself. And I'm amazed at the methods that he used to do so and that he continues to use. In fact, the methods of God's plan is really counterintuitive to anything that we would ever concoct. God's plans make no sense whatsoever from a human perspective. And certainly they are at odds with our modern church growth movement, a movement that can draw a crowd but cannot build a church. And there is a huge difference between a crowd and a church. In fact, by the way, true ministry will always seem counterintuitive. But when you think of God's plan for redemption, think how silly it sounds from man's perspective. God decided to send his own son to earth, not as a conquering king, but as a baby. Born in obscurity. And God, in essence, said, I want him to be part of the most hated people on the planet. I want him to be a part of a group that lives in religious apostasy. I want him to live a life of obscurity. I want him to have virtually no earthly possessions. He'll have no ministry headquarters, no limousines, no radio ministry or television ministry. And I want him for three years to minister to people and to tell them things that they do not want to hear. I want him to wander around in about a 60-mile circle for his ministry. And I want him to attack the influential religious elite. I want him to expose their religious hypocrisy. I don't ever want him to try to gain their support to open doors. I want him to spend most of his time with the poor, with the uneducated, with outcasts, with social misfits. And I never want him to be surrounded by celebrities that can somehow help him get into certain places and draw a bigger crowd. Instead, I want him to choose uneducated, untrained, in most cases, and unwanted social misfits as his representatives. I want him to preach a message that is so utterly offensive and ridiculous that even his own countrymen will cry out for his blood. 
And ultimately, I want him to die an ignominious and excruciating death on a Roman cross condemned for crimes that he never committed. Quite a plan, eh? No marketing firm would ever have conceived of such a plan. Yet Jesus was the most influential person that ever lived on this planet. God deliberately placed astounding obstacles on the gospel road and voluntarily limited his supernatural powers and took on the limitations of humanity. Why would he do this? Well, the answer is very simple. So that he can get all of the glory for what would transpire. And the capstone of his glory is seen in his resurrection from the dead. Today we will join the angel's summons to the two Marys when he bid them come see the place where he was lying. And by God's grace and by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, we will get lost once again in the wonder of the sacred sepulcher that could not hold the one who has power over death. No wonder the theme of Peter's first sermon on the day the church was born, the day of Pentecost, was one of the resurrection where he exclaimed in Acts 2, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Friends, we do not come today to examine a massive pyramid designed to immortalize a mere man whose body is still incarcerated in some dark tomb. Nor do we come to some magnificent mausoleum of a great king or queen that is long departed but seldom remembered. But rather we visit today a vacant vault that once existed Yet now, frankly, we're not even sure where it is, if it still exists. One in which the body disappeared. For he has risen from the dead as he has promised. And child of God, in the reality of this scene, we can find living hope. We have a blessed hope. We have a joyous hope. Because we can think ahead with joyous anticipation with respect to our, to our own resurrection. And we can echo the words of Job who said in Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. What a glorious promise that is. And those of us who are united to Christ in faith, that have loved ones who have gone on before, who have likewise placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, this solemn scene that we look at today will also be a scene of great rejoicing because Jesus said in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So that a wonderful statement. And he also said in John 14:19, and because I live, you shall live also. Because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we 
rejoice not only in the anticipation of being reunited someday with our loved ones, but also we rejoice in the glories of our inheritance. In fact, Peter declared that we have a living hope in 1 Peter 1. He tells us that this hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And the greatest joy, my friends, the greatest joy of our inheritance is seeing the triune God face to face and living in the presence of His glory. God Himself is the supreme gift of our salvation. For this reason, the psalmist said in Psalm 27.4, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. And dear Christian, you must understand that the ultimate exhilaration of our existence is something that we have not yet ever even come close to experiencing. And that is standing in the presence of our God. With this in mind, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when I shall come and appear before God. And Paul would write in Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. You see, there is no other source of delight for our souls than being in the presence of God. Our everlasting pleasure will be in Him alone. Indeed, the greatest gift of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that that means with respect to our being in the presence of the triune God. The supreme joy of heaven will be just that. For this an increasing number of ostensibly Christian people who do not believe in the literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, might I say, those people are not truly born again. Anyone who denies the resurrection of Christ cannot be truly born again. That is essential to the gospel. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. He went on to say in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The latest poll by the Scripps Survey Research Center at Ohio University asked 1,007 adult residents of the United States the following question. Do you believe that after you die, your physical body will be resurrected someday? And it's interesting that out of the entire nation, 36% said yes. And... I found it very fascinating to see that 59% of those who claim to be born again said yes. Now, what that means is 41% said no. Can you imagine claiming that you're born again, but you do not believe in the resurrection? 
Well, back to the text. The two Marys now approach the tomb. Verses 2 and 3, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. Here, dear friends, we see the arrival of the royal messenger, the angel of the Lord. And what a grand and glorious entry it is. Reflecting the brilliant light of divine glory, having been in the presence of the resplendent, ineffable, dazzling light of the Shekinah glory of God. He now descends to earth, this glorious angel, and also an earthquake that rolls the stone away. By the way, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. As later appearances of Jesus indicated, his resurrection body was not bound to the limitations of the physical order of the universe nor will ours someday. But here, my friends, we have a foretaste of, of a future coming of the Lord Himself. When, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And unlike His first arrival, when He came in obscurity and in humility, His second coming will be marked, first of all, by utter darkness when all of the luminaries will cease to give off their light, and suddenly the resplendent glory of the sign of the Son of Man, His Shekinah, will light up the world. And by the way, there will also be another earthquake, according to Zechariah 14. Uh, the Mount of Olives will cleave in two. And so here in this little narrative of historical truth, we see a preview of coming attractions. In John chapter 20 and verse 1, Mary Magdalene, we're told, sees the empty tomb. And when she sees it, she immediately takes off. It says, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and, loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, obviously, she didn't hang around to hear the angelic explanation, nor did it occur to her that he had risen from the dead just like he said he would? And then John's gospel tells us that Peter and John run to the tomb. And now back to verse 4 of Matthew 20, 28. We see the reaction to the supernatural and terrifying event of the angel and the earthquake. It says that the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, there were probably a good number of troops here. We don't know exactly how many. It had to have been a relatively strong detachment, even though a small detachment, probably 20, maybe 50 men. We don't know for sure. We do know that they are going to faint here with fear. And verse 11 tells us that later on, some of them came into the city, which indicates that some of them didn't. Certainly, they feared for their life because of what had happened. But the Greek term here for, for shook is literally related to the same term that we would use or that they would use for earthquake. And it denotes an internal shaking or quaking. So when they saw the angel and the earth shakes and the stone rolls away, it rattles them to the core. That's the idea. Causing them to faint with fear. Now think. 
if a mere angel could cause hardened soldiers to collapse in fear, even at the risk of losing their own lives for failing to do their duty, imagine what it will be like someday when unbelievers will see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory. This leads us to the second glorious aspect of the resurrection scene. Secondly, we hear the message of comfort and command in verse 5. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Here, my friends, we see divine mercy in action. There, there is no reprimand here. Notice, no reprimand for their lack of faith, for not believing in Jesus' promise that he was going to rise from the dead. Instead, God rewards their loving devotion and instructs his angel to console these precious ones like a tender father would care for a frightened child in distress. And the angel immediately summarizes the situation in an economy of words in verse six and says, he is not here for he has risen just as he said. And then he summons the terrified ladies with this command. He says, Come, see the place where he was lying. As if to gently guide these dear women as they faced their fear and their confusion, the angel leads them into the tomb. Now, naturally, these dear ladies were traumatized. We all would have been traumatized. They were speechless. They were emotionally disoriented. I mean, it's one thing to see an empty tomb, but can you imagine standing in the presence of a glorious angel with the light shining all around? People, by the way, in such a condition need clear and concise, objective truth to somehow anchor them to reality. And God provides precisely that with the angelic messenger. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16 and verse 6, we read that he said, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So there they see with their own eyes the, the, the linen wrappings collapsed upon themselves. And by now, Peter and John arrive, and John 20, verse 6, tells us that they beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. <laughs> what an indescribable scene. Imagine the emotions they must have felt. Joy mixed with fear. Hope mixed with doubt. Astonishment mixed with despair. I mean, friends, their emotional system had to have been on overload. Adrenaline racing through their veins. It would all be so hard to take in. And perhaps now their minds are replaying or trying to replay. What was it that Jesus said? If I could only remember exactly what he said, he did say something about rising from the dead. And as I meditate upon that possible reality and most likely reality, I must say, beloved, we must learn to listen very carefully to what the Lord says. 
We must meditate on His Word. We must let it soak into our mind so that it dominates our thoughts and it informs our conscience and it rules our will. You see, we're all going to have great times of of trial in our life. And whenever we're in the crucible of grace, this will be a time of great confusion where we will be overwhelmed. And my friends, you will sink into a slew of despair unless you have the rock of objective truth to stand upon. And I tell you that it's not the right time to learn your theology when you're in the midst of some great trial. Learn it before you get there. And then you will have something to, something to stand upon. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 1 that speaks of the blessed man, the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on that law both day and night. And that man will be like a what? Like a tree that is firmly planted. Well, the angels speak again to the women, Luke tells us in Luke 24, verse 5. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Dear friends, I have to say to you, come see where they have laid him. See it in your mind's eye. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. And dear Christian, when when life's trials seem more than you can bear, you need to go frequently to the empty tomb. You need to come and visit it and be comforted by it. For indeed, that tomb was so full of glory and promise and hope that it could not contain the Lord. And though our sin put Him there, His divine righteousness freed Him from it. Indeed, His resurrection guarantees ours, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:20. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made what? Alive. What a wonderful truth. And this has been the blessed hope of the redeemed down through... Redemptive history. Now, after offering that much needed comfort, God speaks through his messenger and gives them a command in verse seven. He says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, of course, this is in keeping with Jesus earlier promise to his disciples in chapter 26, verse 32, where he said, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, obviously, they didn't really want to hear that because their mind was set on what they wanted to hear. But maybe now they were beginning to remember some of this. Galilee. Why Galilee? Well, this was the place of their origin. This was their home region. This was the place where Jesus had spent most of his time in ministry. This is where most of his miracles had been performed. 
Galilee was a place mixed by both Jew and Gentile. It was far removed from the apostate religious leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. And this would be the place where he would commission them and all of us to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I command you, as we will study later in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 28. But what an indescribable reunion that must have been later on in Galilee to see the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive and is well. And they're able to hear his voice once again, to touch him, to look into his face. And I have to laugh. You can be sure that they listened much more attentively the next time they saw him. Scripture describes, by the way, numerous and many unspecified post-resurrection appearances over the next 40 days where the Lord appeared to various individuals and groups. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And certainly this would have been in Galilee. And I might also add that the testimony, the testimony of so many eyewitnesses gives further credence to the veracity of the resurrection story. So the angel tells the women to go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Interesting what John 20 tells us, reveals to us that Peter and John went away again to their homes. In Mark 24:12, it says that Peter was marveling at what happened. And it also tells us that the other women also departed. No doubt they were, they, they were still, they, they were just in a daze after seeing all that had transpired. Only one woman remained there at the tomb, and that was Mary Magdalene. And John 20, beginning in verse 11, tells us what happened. I'll read this to you. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. What a breathtaking scene. Somehow as I meditate upon that scene, In the recesses of my imagination, I can smell, and perhaps you can as well, the fresh morning air mixed with the aroma of the myrrh and the spices. There's no hint of decay here. Somehow I can see the brightness and the purity and glory of the Lord and the angels and the light that lit up that chamber. 
a chamber that now is not a place of, of unspeakable horror, but of unspeakable rest and promise. As I meditate upon that passage, I can hear the voice of the angels gently encouraging this awestruck woman, still trembling with both fear and joy and weeping. And I think of what verse 12 of John 20 says, she saw two angels in white sitting. And it says that one was at the head and one was at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And and I think about that rock slab where the Savior lay. And as I reflect upon that, and as I see in my mind's eye the angels there, one at the head and one at the feet, I'm reminded of the mercy seat that existed above the Ark of the Covenant that contained the violated law beneath and the angels, the cherubs on either side with outstretched golden wings that hovered over the mercy seat. And the presence of God's glory hovered above that seat. And now they sit on each end of a sacred altar in the sepulcher where only the remnant of the sacrifice remained. Grave clothes without a body, proving again that the final sacrifice had been made and it had been approved by God. Can't you hear those two heavenly beings talking? Perhaps they're engaged in a language that we couldn't even understand. I don't know. Speaking of the marvels of redemption, Speaking of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Spurgeon perfectly captures that moment in his pensive reflection where he said, Ye know that angels did go into his tomb, for they sat one at his head and the other at his foot in holy meditation. I picture to myself those bright cherubs sitting there talking to one another. One of them said, It was there his feet lay. And the other replied, And there is his hands, there his head And in celestial language did they talk concerning the deep things of God. Then they stooped and kissed the rocky floor, made sacred to the angels themselves, not because they were redeemed, but because their their master and their monarch, whose high behests they were obeying, did for a while become the slave of death and the captive of destruction. What an amazing scene. And now thirdly, as we examine this text, we witness the hearts of these women, hearts of obedience, hearts that were somehow balanced with a godly fear and joy. You see, great illumination always calls for faithful obedience. And in verse 8, we see this. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. By the way, Luke tells us that when the disciples heard this, they thought it was nonsense. <laughs> they, they didn't believe it. And again, I must add, this is yet another piece of evidence refuting the notion that somehow the disciples had stolen the body or were even thinking about it. You see, the ladies now do exactly what they're told to do. Their hearts filled with fear and great joy. And I want to camp on that for a moment. You see, 
Godly fear will always be the reaction of those who have legitimately heard from God. From those who have legitimately been in His presence through the power of His Holy Spirit. You see, the Word of God tells us that the fear of God in Scripture is described as the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the hatred of evil. It is the beginning of wisdom, and it is wisdom. It is a treasure to saints. It is a fountain to life. The Scriptures tell us that the fear of God is cultivated by contemplating the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God, the wondrous works of God, and the judgments of God. If you want to fear God, contemplate on His holiness, His greatness, His goodness, His forgiveness, His wondrous works, and His judgments. And you will fear God. The Bible tells us that those who fear God give pleasure to God. They are pitied by God. They are accepted by God. They receive mercy from God. They're blessed by God. They confide in God. They will depart from evil. They will converse together with other saints about holy things. And that they will not have a fear of man. And that God will fulfill the desires of their heart. All of this is characterized in the faithful obedience of these dear women. And as a result of their godly fear, they were filled with joy. You see, folks, the source of true joy can only flow from the wellspring of godly fear. All else is a fleeting pleasure. And for this reason, there Hearts can be summarized well by the psalmist's words in Psalm 211, where we read, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There is the balance. And finally, we behold the, the living Savior in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Oh, what joy to see the risen Savior face to face. Can you imagine what they must have experienced? It reminds me of that song that the ensemble sings from time to time. And one of the choruses says, When I see Him, see His glory, when I stand in awe of His majesty, bow before Him and adore Him in His presence forever I will be. It's little wonder that they took hold of His feet and they worshipped Him. You see, such will always be the response of those who have truly been redeemed, who truly love the Lord and worship Him and long to be in His presence forever. Then in verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to My brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see Me. Oh, child of God, don't miss the profundity of this little simple text. For tucked inside of this text are, that, are, are the most precious words. One in particular, the word brethren. Notice he did not say, go tell those cowards. Go, go tell those unfaithful scoundrels. Go tell those quarrelsome disciples of mine, those proud and ignorant characters. No, he said, you go tell those brethren, my brethren. 
You see, he had previously called them slaves and and friends, but now for the first time, the Lord calls them his brethren. You see, friends, you must understand, because now, after the cross, they had and we have a new relationship with him. We are now his brethren. Paul summarizes this so well in Romans 8:14 as the spirit of God speaks through his pen it says we are now sons of God you see verse 15 says you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out abba father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Thus the Lord can say, go tell my brethren, I'm coming. I'll meet you in Galilee. What a marvelous thought. And also it's for this reason that we can call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all related to each other through Christ, those of us that love him. What a marvelous reality, all made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. Oh, the glories of the resurrection so clearly manifested in the character and the conduct of two women. I want to close with this thought this morning. Dear friends, we must all die. And seldom do we think of that moment. But it will come. For some, it will come suddenly. For others, it will be a time of lingering and perhaps languishing on some bed of affliction. But whenever we pause to consider the day when suddenly the Spirit leaves the clay, I pray that you will remember the empty tomb on that day. I pray that you will visit it on that day and take in all that it represents on your behalf. Because for such a, such a chamber... As the Lord once lie upon and lied in, will be yours as well and mine someday. When this frail tabernacle of flesh and bone ceases to function. And I pray that when you look back across your journey on that day, that your heart will not be pierced by the pangs of regret and remorse, but rather that your fear will be tempered with joy. And how sad, and I have seen this more times than I wish to recount, those who even claim the name of Christ, who lie upon that bed, and they're plagued by the tyranny of the if-onlys. If only I had made the Lord the priority of my life, If only I had humbled myself more before His Word and lived consistently with it. If only I had honored Him with my time and my resources rather than spending it all upon myself. If only I had worked less and worshipped more. If only I had loved my wife as Christ loved the church. If only I had loved my husband as God would have me. 
If only I had instructed my children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. If only, if only. And oh, how much more bitter it is for those who lie on that bed without Christ. I've witnessed to them as they growl at me. I've seen them writhe in uncomfortable pain. Not just because of their physical condition, because today we have so many medications that can alleviate that. But they writhe in spiritual anguish because they have no hope. And I believe that literally the flames of hell begin to engulf them. Oh, what a bitter farewell, farewell, I should say, that that day will be for those who wasted their entire life on themselves and never lived for the glory of God. Well, may the glories of the resurrection stir each of our hearts this morning. Kind of like Easter Sunday morning in the middle of July, right? May it stir our hearts as we learn from the loyal women and from the royal messengers, heed what they have to say, to come and look into the empty tomb. And may we hear the message of comfort and command and imitate the hearts of those women, the hearts of obedience balanced by a godly fear that produced this great joy of walking with Christ. And may we anticipate that day when we too will behold the Savior face to face, not in a tomb, but outside the tomb. To God be the glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for imparting to us through Your Holy Spirit these divine truths. May we grasp them and meditate upon them and make them a part of our life. And I pray especially for those that have never confessed Christ as Lord. Again, I would ask that You would overwhelm them with the terror of that which awaits them when someday they too will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, but not as Savior, but as judge, unless they repent. And Lord, cause them to do so before it is too late for Your glory and for their joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.